I am Pastor Corrine Boroff, Senior Pastor at Anderson First United Methodist Church. Thank you for listening to our worship service today. If you want to learn more about this church, visit our website at andersonfirst.org. Have a blessed day and enjoy the message. Our lesson is from Exodus 20, verse 17, and Luke 12, verses 13 through 21. Do not want anything that belongs to someone else. Don't want anyone's house, wife, or husband, slaves, oxen, donkeys, or anything. Please stand as you are able for our gospel reading. A man in a crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to give me my share of what our father left us when he died. Jesus answered, Who gave me the right to settle arguments between you and your brother? Then he said to the crowd, Don't be greedy. Owning a lot of things won't make your life safe. So Jesus told them this story. A rich man's farm produced a big crop, and he said to himself, What can I do? I don't have a place large enough to store everything. Later he said, Now I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, where I can store all my grain and other goods. Then I'll say to myself, You have stored up enough good things to last for years to come. Live it up, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, You fool, tonight you will die. Then who will get what you have stored up? This is what happens to people who store up everything for themselves, but are poor in the sight of God. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. You all know by now that I am a Time magazine reader. Some issues are not worth keeping. Most of them get tossed in the recycle bin as soon as I've finished reading them. 
but some are worth hanging on to, and they become a reference that I go back to from time to time. One such issue came out a few years ago. The cover title of this particular issue was The Pursuit of Happiness. There was no hardcore news coverage that week, I guess. I remember turning to the inside story, and the first thing that caught my eye was the photograph of a delicious-looking triple-scoop ice cream cone. Now, ice cream does have a way of producing a certain amount of happiness in us. It certainly does for my father. Our quest for this particular taste of happiness has made goods ice cream Uh, candy and ice cream shop out on 53rd, the go-to destination in Anderson. I believe I've seen many of you out there. (laughs) Did you know that during banana split month, they sell around 50 banana splits a day? I know, I asked them. (laughs) The second thing I noticed was the twist of words on the title of one of the inside stories. The pursuit of happiness had become the happiness of pursuit. The writers seem to suggest that we get a certain amount of happiness just from pursuing it, from pursuing happiness. In fact, as I read later in the article, researchers indicate that there is evidence that Americans in particular, that was interesting, are hardwired to find some measure of happiness simply in its pursuit, whether they actually achieve their goals or not. The third thing I noticed was the subtitle of that cover article. It read, Americans are free to pursue happiness, but there's no guarantee we'll achieve it. The secret is knowing how and where to look. Okay, so all this begs the question, what is happiness? We all sort of assume we understand what we mean when we say, I'm happy. It's an emotion of some kind. It can be short-lived or it can be a general attitude or way of being. We often describe it by stating what it is not. It is not sadness, for example. Happiness may be the common word to describe a general sense of well-being, but it's a little hard to pin down. What word would you use as a synonym for happiness? Think about it for a moment. What word would you use as a synonym for happiness? Okay, do you have a word or words in mind? Well, turn to the person next to you and share what word you thought about. The synonym for happiness. Okay. Perhaps some of you uh, thought of satisfaction or contentment. 
or serenity or laughter, as I heard out there. Sharon, was that you? <laughs> All right. <laughs> laughter, serenity, joy, rest. In whatever way we describe it, whatever nuance of the word fits us best at a given moment, whatever it is we want to experience in our lives, we can't deny that happiness is a good thing. And for the most part, people want to be happy, and so they do what they can to find it and to avoid the alternative. People pursue happiness. Well, that brings us to the next question. What is it that makes us happy? Besides ice cream, Dad, <laughs> research suggests that marriage, more than anything, brings happiness. And after that, money, presumably the things that it will buy and the security that it affords. And after money, it is work, then children, then being part of a social community. And finally, the freedom and resources to pursue one's own goals. But of course, it must be a good and companionable and safe marriage work that is meaningful, and a social community that is open and authentic rather than oppressive and threatening. But nowhere, not once, except in a minor statistical note, was there any reference in those Time magazine articles on happiness to our spiritual nature or to the quality of difference there might be between happiness and joy, for example. You would not think from reading these articles that happiness and its deeper, richer cousin joy might just be derived from within us as a gift of God. That happiness might be more spiritual than it is physical. The authors almost stumble upon it when they write, all human beings may come equipped with the pursuit of happiness impulse. But then they go on to say, the urge to find lusher land just over the hill, fatter buffalo in the next valley. But it's Americans who have codified the idea and written it into the Declaration of Independence and made it a central mandate of their national character. And that sells. All commercials in print, on television, or on our mobile phones sell us on pursuing happiness. Most take a subtle approach. Occasionally, however, the message is anything but subtle. Do you remember that AT&T commercial a few years ago? A small group of children is sitting in a circle with an adult interviewer who asks, what is better, more or less? And one little girl replies with great excitement, we want more, we want more. If you really like it, you want more. And then the off-screen voice summarizes, it's not complicated. More is better. In 1870, John D. Rockefeller founded the Standard Oil Company. And he ran the company aggressively, and with the growing importance of kerosene and gasoline to American society, his wealth grew to unbelievable proportions. 
He was the first American to become a billionaire. And even adjusted for inflation, he is regarded as the richest person in history. At one point in his career, Rockefeller was asked how much money it would take to make him really satisfied. And he answered, just a little bit more. It's not complicated. More is better. But that's the problem, isn't it? It always takes a little bit more. Contentment, satisfaction, happiness always remains elusive. We keep our eyes on the family next door, maybe, if we had what they have. We keep our eyes on our colleagues, maybe if we had their jobs. And we watch that BMW convertible streak through the yellow light with its top down and think, ugh, if only that were mine. And we watch television day in and day out. And for me, it's HGTV. And we come to, to believe deep down inside us that what will truly make us happy is not all that complicated. More is better. You have to admit, this 10th commandment found in Exodus 20:17 cuts right to the heart of the American dream. Do not want anything that belongs to someone else. Don't want, don't covet anyone's house, wife, husband, slaves, oxen, donkeys, or anything <coughs> else. Of all the commandments that speak to the things we do or should not do, this one speaks to the heart. And Jesus said, it is from within, from out of the human heart, that evil intentions come. The Hebrew word for covet also includes our understanding of the word lust. And this is helpful for us to know because it truthfully describes how our envy usually feels. It's a lustful desire for something that someone else has. Now, desire is a good thing. It gets us out of bed in the morning. It helps put food on our tables. It gives us the motivation to achieve important things in our lives and to connect with people and to care for one another. It helps us focus and pay attention. Desire is a good thing. But lust is distorted desire. Coveting is desire gone awry. It's a desire that has become an addiction and enormously painful when not satisfied. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say something that might be worth thinking about. I wonder. I wonder if wanting, coveting, is a necessary ingredient for our capitalist economy to work. It's not complicated. We hear it over and over and over. More is better. And still, more does not satisfy. Time almost got it right when it said all human beings may come equipped with the pursuit of happiness impulse. 
But time got it totally wrong in defining its ultimate source. Happiness is not found in capitalism or the accumulation of things. Theologians Hauerwas and Willeman write, we were created to love God. And when that love is misdirected, life degenerates into a jumble of disordered desires, fragments, that testifying that we were meant to be something quite else than what we have become. End quote. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Augustine said that, and it speaks to the heart of the Ten Commandments. Only God can satisfy our desire because we were created and loved by God to love God in return. Nothing can truly satisfy our deep longing for rest, for contentment, for satisfaction, for love outside of God. Our problem is not that we have too much desire. God created us with desire. Our problem is that we desire that which is ultimately unfulfilling. We try to be content with those things that will not satisfy. C.S. Lewis once wrote that we are too easily pleased. We have recorded in Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21, a story Jesus told of a man with distorted desire. He was a man too easily pleased. Jesus was talking to a crowd of people one day, and someone hearing him evidently had a financial beef with his elder brother. It was a matter of inheritance. Now, the Jewish laws of inheritance gave the elder brother a double portion over that of the other brothers. That much is clear. But this younger brother obviously felt he was not getting his fair share. And so who better to settle this matter than the wandering rabbi who had just charged the Pharisees with hypocrisy and who had declared that all hidden secrets would become known. You can check that out in verses 1 and 2 of the same chapter. I'm sure this young man was surprised when Jesus rejected his request to settle the matter. Maybe Jesus simply didn't want to get involved in settling a financial dispute among brothers. Instead of helping the man get his share of an inheritance, Jesus points the man to a different understanding of life. And so Jesus begins his story. There was a rich man who worked hard and whose land produced abundantly. And one year, after the end of a particularly healthy harvest, he realized that he didn't have big enough barns to store all his crops. What am I going to do, he thought. I know. This is what I'll do. I'll pull down my old barns, I'll build new and larger ones instead, and then I'll put all my grain and produce into the new barns. And then I can relax. I can pat myself on the back and say, good job. You have enough goods now to last a long time. You don't need to worry about anything anymore. Relax, eat, drink, be happy. You deserve it. 
Now, I'm guessing that the people hearing Jesus tell this story are thinking, sure do wish that was me. I'd like to have even enough for one small barn. If I had enough for even one small shed, I'd be happy. I wish I could relax and be happy. But Jesus hasn't finished the story. And while the crowd is dreaming about bigger barns, he continues. Now, God was listening to this rich man, thinking about how he was going, what he was going to do with his huge harvest and how he was going to relax and enjoy himself. And it seems that God got a bit perturbed. You're a fool, God said to the rich man. Tonight you are going to die, and all those dreams of yours will mean nothing. And all those things you have, who will get them? Well, that was an unexpected twist. I wonder how long Jesus let his words hang in silence before he pronounced the moral of his story. Can you hear the whispers? What's he saying? Yeah, of course, we will all die, but what does that have to do with our stuff today while we are living? Is Jesus for or against rich people? What does this have to be have to do with me? Maybe it doesn't have anything to do with me after all. I'm not rich. Then Jesus speaks again. This is what happens to people who store up everything for themselves but are poor in the sight of God. Suddenly, this story of the rich man becomes the surprising story of us all. The rich, the poor, and everyone in between. It is the surprising story of all people who store up treasures for themselves but are not rich in the things of God. This story is included in the Gospel of Luke. And believe me, you don't want to read Luke's telling of the gospel story if you're rich. And if you're wearing a pair of shoes this morning, by all measures of people who live on this planet, you're rich. Luke comes down very hard on rich people. But is Jesus speaking against wealth per se in this little parable? Does the 10th commandment tell us that we should not want anything? We can sort of ease right on by and justify ourselves by saying that, of course, Jesus isn't against wealth, and, of course, desire is a good thing, and besides, God gives good gifts to his children, but that lets us too easily off the hook. Let's see if we can identify some of this rich man's characteristics. At the beginning of Jesus' story, there is nothing but the man and his possessions. His goods and his prosperity have become the sole purpose of his life. I can't remember the last time I saw the bumper sticker. I haven't seen it recently. Whoever has the most toys when he dies wins. You remember that one? We may no longer stick this little bit of philosophy on our cars, but our society lives it out in profound and disturbing ways. Our preoccupation with possessions is of no value in God's kingdom. This is not where the meaning of life lies. 
God tells the rich man, you fool. The meaning of life is found in relationship with me. That alone lasts for eternity, beginning in this life and continuing on into the next. Seek first the kingdom of God. And by the way, the former pastor of this congregation, Bob Jackson, whose life we celebrated in this sanctuary last Thursday, I am sure would never have put that bumper sticker on his car. By all experience and testimony this past Thursday, Bob Jackson was an example of someone who sought first the kingdom of God. He knew what was most important, and he lived that out among us. Secondly, in Jesus' story, we see a man who does not need anyone else. He can provide for himself, and what he has worked for and provided by his own sweat and effort will last him many years. He does not need the security of love of his family or friends. He does not need to feel um, the community of support or the security of God's love. He is quite sufficient on his own to meet the needs he has now and in the future. Thank you very much. But it is a fallacy to think that we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Our security is not in self-sufficiency, but in the community with God's people. We need each other, and in authentic community, we find God's love and our greatest joy. Which leads to the third characteristic of the rich man in Jesus' story. He has no compassion for others who are in need. The thought of what he might be able to do for others who could use some of his abundant produce never even enters his mind. How to keep it for himself, that is his most important consideration. You know, greed is the absolute opposite of generosity. And this man's innermost thought reveals that he has no more he has no sense of responsibility toward those who have little of these world's goods i do not know you jesus said on another occasion toward those people who did not care for the least of those in society did you notice in jesus telling of the story how excited the rich man was when he imagined what his life was going to be like in the future his dreams about indulging his every desire, eating, drinking, and having a grand old time. The greatest good he can imagine is a life indulging his own pleasure. But here's the troubling thing. The rich man of Jesus' story would no doubt have said, hey, I believe in God. But when it came to managing his life and dealing with his possessions and planning for his future, he lived as if God didn't matter. Peter Rhea Jones uses a rather startling term for this rich man's approach to life. He calls it practical atheism. How many in our world today believe in God but live as if God didn't exist? The Tenth Commandment says, do not covet, do not desire, do not lust after anything that belongs to anyone else. But it is not easy in our world where the cultural mandate is to pursue our own happiness, is it? It's not easy. 
It's not easy in our world that continually tells us more is better. What is it that you really want? I'm going to assume that what we really ultimately want is joy, contentment, rest, satisfaction, peace, all that rolled up into that wonderful Hebrew word shalom. We have been created for it. Time magazine is right when it says that there is happiness in pursuit. And we are all free to pursue happiness. There's no guarantee we'll achieve it. However, the secret is in knowing how and where to look. But the secret is lost on Time's writers. Time doesn't point the way. Our culture doesn't point the way. The secret is not lost on Jesus, however. And Jesus clearly points the way. Jesus is the way. God's people find their greatest joy and satisfaction in following him and following his way. In closing, let me suggest four ways of extracting ourselves from the pull of materialism in our lives. And it affects us all. It affects us all. These are not necessarily the best ways or the only ways, but they are a place to start. If we want first and foremost to love God with our heart and soul, mind and strength, they are a place to start if we truly want to pursue happiness. First, spend more time in God's company. Seek God out. Pursue God, and you will find what you're looking for. That is God's promise to us, and God is faithful in keeping his promises. Second, in those times of unhappiness or dissatisfaction, in those times when you experience nagging discomfort that makes you just want to jump out of your skin, in times when the ache of not having enough money to buy the latest and greatest thing is about to kill you, bring to mind those moments of great peace and joy. Think about those things and remember the faithfulness of God. Here's a third way. Evaluate your motives. Whenever there is something that you really want, you dream about it, you plan for it, you research it on the Internet, or you simply see it in the store or online that strikes your fancy and you're ready to pull out that credit card, stop. Stop just a moment and ask yourself, why do I want this? Do I really need it? And the fourth suggestion is very practical and hands-on. I've mentioned this in other settings at other times. Give away two things you already own for every new thing you buy. I don't know if this will help you or not, but I think it can help reorient our perspective. And it is at least a step in the direction of standing against the more is better lie that so permeates our society. 
In God's kingdom, coveting is meaningless because everything we need, everything bring that, everything that brings joy and satisfaction, everything that brings us ultimate happiness is free. It's a gift from the hand of Almighty God who loves us and longs for our love in return. And so this commandment, like every other, is not given to restrict us or to force us into life of joyless austerity. It's given that we may find abundant life through God, in God through Jesus Christ. It's the road we travel. And as we travel, we will experience more and more of what we truly desire. It's not complicated. God's people find their joy and satisfaction in him.